Well, the experience happened again this week where I was asked that dreaded question. It's become dreaded because the, the reaction is always weird. Oh, Mike, what do you do? I had been hanging out with two guys that I met for the first time uh, Wednesday, and we were involved in an activity that pretty much occupied our attention, so we didn't have very significant conversation, at least not about anything of, of real depth. And right as we were about to part ways and go to our cars, one of the guys said, Mike, what do you do? And then a hundred ideas ran in my head, because <laughs> I know it's going to get a weird reaction. And after spending two hours with this guy, I knew he was not a believer. And I thought, well, I could say I'm in human resources. I could, I could say I'm a consultant, um, a public speaker, whatever. And, and, or I thought I could go the other way, and I could say I'm an Anglican priest and sound real clerical. And um, I decided to just say I'm a pastor. And then he got really awkward, and he said, oh, uh, I'm, I hope my language wasn't too bad. And he feels this need to give me a confession. Or so I, I thought, if you understood the good news of the gospel— that I, you would understand that I have grace for you. I'm not judging you. I'm not your judge. I, you can speak however you want. I mean, that's your deal. That's not mine. But see, what it is, is it's a reminder to me that we are not of this world, that those who walk with Jesus are different. And you don't have to be a pastor to know that experience. You know that, that moment when your faith gets put out there on the line, and there's somebody that's not a believer there, and there's an awkward tension, and you feel it. You know what that's like. And to follow Christ is to no longer be of this world, even though you're still in it. And that puts us in a really tough spot often. It's hard. And I want to say up front to those who are not sure if they want to follow Jesus yet, I want to be clear, full disclosure, that it is hard to follow the Lord in this world. And a lot of people come into faith thinking, oh, this is what I get out of it, you know, salvation, forgiveness, promise of eternity, all this kind of stuff, and miss the call to discipleship that it is tough. Somebody once said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been found hard and left mostly untried. That the minute it becomes tough, people go, "Uh," and they back away from it. And, but Christianity is so good. I think of the apostles when they were tested with a difficult moment, and Jesus said, do you want to leave too? They said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And as we just sang, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. But it doesn't necessarily make it any easier in those moments. Jesus said some really tough stuff to his followers, and he was real clear about the cost of discipleship. We're in John 17, but in John 16, right before this, he says in verse 1 of John 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, that specifically was happening to the apostles, but it continues to happen to people today. And the apostle Paul said this to um, the people that he was writing to, and particularly Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Those are strong and tough words. And the media seems to be reveling in the fact that some recent survey results have come out. The Pew Forum did a survey again of 35,000 adults in America, and they noted that the percentage of Americans that claim to be Christians is declining. Now, the fact that the number is at 71% already tells me that we're not talking about the same religion here. More like cultural Christians are starting to not say they're Christian anymore because it's okay to do that. 
And the media, though, seems to be setting it up like Christianity has failed. It's, it's, it's on its last breath. It's going to be done. But I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think what's happening is there's a separation in our culture right now of Christ followers from cultural, religious, superstitious people that would call themselves Christians but don't follow Christ. That is happening right now in our time. But the media just loves this. They're reveling in these numbers because it looks like the, the institution of religion is crumbling right before them, and it won't be long before there's no more of it. But, of course, Jesus' promise is that he, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So despite what the trends seem to say, I actually think the church is getting stronger, even though the statistics suggest there are less people claiming Christ as their Lord. But see, who are your enemies? Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I define an enemy as anyone who wishes ill of me, anyone who does not want to see me succeed. And when I see the media seemingly happy that the number of Christians is declining, I identify that as someone who's an enemy, somebody who does not want our success. If you're a believer, there are many people who would like you to stop proclaiming Christ. Be like the rest of us. Quit throwing your religion in my face. And maybe you're not even throwing your religion in people's face. You're just following God, and because God is present in your life, they feel their own shame and sin and guilt. And your very presence as a light and salt in the world causes that, and so they wish you to stop. And it puts a tension there. It is tough. Now, in this, this sermon series, this is the last message of this Resurrection Life sermon series. Um, this is the Feast of Ascension was Thursday. This is the Sunday after the Feast of Ascension. So, as you know, Jesus rose from the grave, visited with a number of people, and then ascended into heaven where he currently and secretly rules over all of the universe. He's seated at the right hand of the Father now and is, rule, excuse me, is ruling over all of the universe. Now, Resurrection Life was our sermon series title as we looked at this season of what, what happened because of Jesus' resurrection. And today's title is Resurrection Life when the world's against you. Because to be in the world but not of the world puts you in a spot where the world is against you if you're a Christian. Well, the resurrection means that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has ascended and is interceding on our behalf even right now. It's an amazing thing. And we're in a spot, one of my professors used to illustrate it this way, where he said this was the old covenant age, and it came like this, and then the cross was here. And Jesus inaugurated a new age like this. And it looks like it should be nice and clean, but in experience, it's more like this. It's an overlap of the ages. And so he has already conquered. Jesus has already ascended in his ruling, but he has not yet put all of his enemies away. And so there's this tension that we're in. We live in this spot right now. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those are the last words of chapter 16, which is part of this extended final discourse Jesus gives before he goes to the cross for us. John 17 is a rich text. In fact, one of the, uh, um, uh, a man who had served, his name is Thomas Manton, a man who had served as a chaplain to the British leader Oliver Cromwell, once wrote 45 sermons on just chapter 17, and then these sermons were published in a book that was 450 pages long. And I don't think he was long-winded in stretching ideas. I think there is so much rich content in chapter 17 that he really could, with integrity, write 45 distinct sermons to bring out the truth of what's here. This is an amazing passage because it shows us Jesus' intimate prayer life. And Jesus didn't pray this out loud 
because he had to pray out loud. He prayed this so that his followers would hear what he prayed. And I think just jumping back to chapter 11 in John's gospel, it's um, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, there's this moment where the tomb has been opened and Lazarus's decaying four-day-old dead body is in that tomb and Jesus is about to raise him to new life and he prays this. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, I don't need to pray out loud, but I'm going to pray out loud right now so these people can hear how I pray. I believe that's the exact same thing going on in John chapter 17. This is sometimes referred to as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we get a glimpse of him interceding for the church. When the world is against you, Jesus is for you. And you see it right here in the way that he prays. So we're going to take a look at this passage in a second and think about him as an intercessor and the power of that. Let that just, let your mind wrap, be, wrap around that idea. Jesus is interceding for you and how much power there is in that. I, um, I read a, an account of a man who was really gifted at dialogue and debating and was speaking up for Christianity and was, had, had agreed to be in a public debate with an atheist who was very outspoken and published a lot. And, and this big event was going to happen and the audience was there and these two men were getting ready to enter into this debate. And he said, as I walked out onto the stage, I had a smile because I had a secret weapon that my opponent did not know about. He said in the room where the auditorium was there, was, there was a room below it. And he said he had assembled over 100 prayer intercessors to go down there and pray on his behalf. And he said as the debate started, um, it went really well. And, and his opponent started to like, lose his notes and get disheveled and get nervous. And he found himself even arguing the opposite point just to help this guy along. You might have meant to say to me such and such, and let me tell you why. And, and he started having the argument for him. Because there was this massive boiler room of prayer underneath, giving him strength and power. Now, think of that, but imagine that that prayer room is filled with Jesus himself praying for you and your success, interceding on your behalf. That's a powerful thing. And the Lord, that's, that's what the scriptures show us. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and intercedes on behalf of us. Such a strong thing. In 1 John chapter 2, it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. An advocate is one who's called alongside to bring aid. Jesus Christ has been called alongside of us to help us in, in this world. The Great Commission, where he says, go and make disciples, it ends with these words, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His promise to be with us, even though the world is tough. So what does he pray for his followers? There are five things that I want to note from John chapter 17 that he actually prays for his followers. There, there's a lot more than that in, in here. I want to observe five things here. And I'm asking myself, what is my part? If this is what Jesus is praying for me, what is my part in it? I know that the world, society, culture, and even the devil and his demons do not want to see these five things happen in my life. But I know that Jesus himself is praying that they would come about in my life and in your life. So what's my part in there? Am I somehow subverting these things? And then I pray every week, thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but then I don't participate in his will coming about? Or am I actively working to see these things happen because I know that Jesus is praying them for me? So let me start with the first one in verse 11, faithfulness. He is praying for faithfulness on behalf of his believers, on those that trust in him. Verse 11, he says this. 
He's praying to the Father. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. The name of someone is the summation of their person and their character. To think of the name of God is to think of all that he is. And he's praying, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them as faithful Christians, as faithful followers and servants. The opposite of this would be backsliding. It is possible to come to faith, know the Lord, and then recede from obedient service and to fall back into the old patterns of how your life used to look before you came to know the Lord. It's called backsliding. You just are sliding away from the Lord. And Jesus is praying that that wouldn't happen, that that the Father would keep his followers in his name, walking as faithful believers. The second thing is unity. Also in verse 11, it goes on a little further. Uh, Keep them, Holy Father, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So his prayer is for unity, that he wants to see Christians unified with one another, united in the things that are most important. I go back on this topic to what St. Augustine once famously said. He said, in essentials, we need unity. And in non-essentials, we need liberty. And in all things, we need charity. So there are some places where good and faithful Christians disagree. Should we baptize infants or not? Should women be in um, ordained positions or not? Um, How should church governance work? Should it be bishops, priests, deacons, or a body of elders and government by committee or not? These are faithful Christians on both sides of these arguments, and there is room for some liberty there. But where there's not, uh, where we shouldn't have liberty is in the essentials. The Bible is God's word. It is authoritative. Jesus is the way to salvation. He is unique in that. There are not many ways. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. These and a number of other things are considered the essentials. The creed kind of summarizes Christian essentials. If you can't agree on the creed, you really do need to part ways. However, you can part ways with with charity. It doesn't have to be mean. You can do it with gentleness and respect and say, well, we're going to have to part ways here. We actually believe different things, and and the fellowship must split here. So in essentials, we have to have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. We have freedom. And in all things, we must have charity. I know a, a group of people in our in our area who are um, starting a new church, not because they had a strong call to go plant a new church, but because they had a conflict within their existing church. And I, I commend them because they went to the leaders. They said, here's, my, here's our grievance with the leadership of this church. Here's why we, we can't stay any longer, and we're going to leave and start a new church, and we're not going to recruit from the congregation, so we're not going to try to steal sheep away. We're not going to badmouth you. We're going to simply part ways, and we wish you well. I, I, I can honor that. That really does care for the body of Christ. Here's a, here's a pop quiz question for you. How many churches are there in Fleming Island? There's one. There's one. There's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. If you started counting up all the denominations and stuff, you're missing the point. There is one church in the world. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so um, we have to be unified. We know Jesus is praying for this. It's part of his, his intercession. So faithfulness, unity. The third thing is joy. Look at um, verse 13. In verse 13, it says, he prays, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The joy of Christ in us comes from both current blessings as well as the hope of what we know we're going to receive. The future promise of glory with Him is enough to sustain us even when it gets really hard. So Christians are able to have a joy when the world is against them. When they are losing everything and they seem to be totally down, they can still have joy in that midst. We have blessings right now. We know we are forgiven. We know we have fellowship with God. We know He's praying for us. In this passage, He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you've given me out of the world. So we have, we have Jesus on our side. These are blessings for now, and then the hope of eternity with him gives us a picture of future blessings. So we can have joy even when things are hard. I think about the famous um, martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop. He was a follower of the Apostle John. So after Jesus ascended, he left the apostles in charge. The apostles took others and discipled them, and then they went on and discipled. And that, that succession has continued to this day. Polycarp was one of John's followers, and he was a bishop and a good leader, but he was martyred at the age of 84. And he was put in front of his enemies, and they forced him to recount his faith. Or, um, and, and so what he says is this. He says, 80 in four years I have served my Lord, and he has never disappointed me. I will not deny him now. And they killed him right there. That, those were his parting words. He's never disappointed me. I've served him for 84 years. He's my Lord. Why would I possibly deny him? And with joy in his martyrdom, he went to be with the Lord. What a powerful witness that is. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that has these and other accounts in it of what God has done in the lives, joyfully in the lives of people as they were, as they were facing their death. It's amazing testimony. Never has he disappointed me. So faithfulness, unity, joy. A fourth thing that he prays for is holiness. In verse 15, he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That can also be translated that you keep them from evil. So he is praying for holy lives. And it goes on in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth. So sanctify means to make something holy, to set it aside. And the truth of the gospel makes us holy. It, it moves us into righteousness, both Christ's righteousness for us, but then a life of righteous deeds. We actually start to carry on his, his character. We start to be Christ-like. Now, Jesus says, I love them right now. He loves you right as you are in all of your problems and struggles and sin and brokenness. But because of the love that he has for you, he won't leave you like that. He's going to make you more and more like himself. That's the process of sanctification. He's praying for holiness. He's, he works the events of our lives so that we will become more and more like him. He accepts people right where they are, but he loves them so much he's going to keep working to make them perfect. He won't stop until you're perfected in glory with him. That's part of his work. So that's what he's praying for. And then the fifth one is witness or mission, um, sending out into the world. Verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And then a little further down, we didn't read this part, but in verse 23 he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So he is sending us out as witnesses into the world so that the world will know that he loves us and that the Father loves him. <clears throat> this is a really powerful commission for us. The gospel is going to go out through our witness by the word of our testimony, our witness to him, the gospel is going to advance in the world. 
But remember, I said it's a scary thing. Jesus said it this way, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Think for a minute of a little sheep walking through a field full of wolves. Big, snarly teeth, scary, hungry wolves. I had an experience a couple years ago where I foolishly decided I would go canoeing up the little slough that's in my neighborhood. And it connects to Doctor's Lake. And there's a path, a walking path with a sign with red letters that said, beware of the alligators. For the walkers, of course. I was safely in a canoe. So Ellie and I decided that we would go canoeing. And the thing about a canoe is it's very swift and it's very calm. It doesn't make a big disturbance. It glides through the water. So Ellie and I are paddling. We start paddling up. And, and then the alligators are startled by this big 16-foot canoe, and they go like that. And that kept happening. One, two, three. About the 10th time that happened, my anxiety level was so high. I, th- I thought, I've got this nice little gator bite sitting in the bow of my canoe. I have got to get her and myself out of these waters before one of these one of these alligators knocks us over, and then we're eaten. I mean, what good is a canoe paddle going to do against a prehistoric dinosaur with big teeth? It's just not going to do any good. So we paddled back. But that's the image. Behold, I'm sending you into the world as sheep among wolves. What is a sheep going to do to fight a wolf? They are defenseless, you know? That's how Jesus, that's the image he gives us. And it's a crazy thing. But see, he said, I'm going with you. I will go with you. And then he prays for us. He's interceding for you and me right now, eternally. He doesn't rest. He's not sleeping. He does this for us to sustain us in this difficult mission. And when the world sees our faithfulness to him in the midst of difficult things, they will give glory to God. That is what will happen. That's how the church grows. So the world and the devil do not want these things. They don't want you to be faithful to your church and to your Lord. They don't want you to have unity. They want to divide. The thief comes only to to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus said. They don't want joy. They want you to look gloomy, sad, and broken and depressed like the rest of us, like the rest of the world. But Christians have a joy in them. They don't want you to be holy because your holiness serves to judge them. You're not trying to judge, but they look at your holy life and the things that you do because you love God, and then they suddenly realize they're not walking in the same way. And they don't want you to give witness. They really wish you'd stop talking about all that religious stuff and they call you a freak, a Jesus freak or something, because again, your life looks so different than theirs. The world is against us, but Jesus is praying for us. So I come back to the question, what is my part? I pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, and I know right here at least part of what Jesus's will is for me. I wonder, am I undermining these things by my own behavior? Am I somehow subverting what Jesus is praying would come, and that I'm praying his will to be done, Or am I working to see these happen in my life? Because I know that Jesus is praying them for me, it gives me courage to pursue them as well. So may that be so for us. Let's pursue with with real zeal these things of God. Would you pray with me now? Jesus, I thank you that you have not left us alone. I thank you that because of your resurrection and the sending of your spirit, we are empowered in this world, that you are helping us. Lord, we lift before you the struggles that we have, our enemies, the hardships of this life. And we pray for your help. We ask you to look down upon us and to strengthen us for the journey. We thank you that you've already won. So we pray this in your holy name. Amen.
I invite you to stand.